Introductory prayers to the daily davening. I'm using the new Sitter. On page 21, there's a beautiful prayer that we say, and it's actually a quote, a Talmudic quote. It says, center page, Abaya, who is a Talmudic scholar, recounted the order of the daily priestly functions on the authority of tradition and in accordance with the views of Abba Shol. And then he goes through the whole order of what happened every day. Now, as the commentaries on Rambam here will point out, the halacha does not follow Abba Shol. The halacha follows the sages, who are the majority over Abba Shol, and there are some slight changes. Nevertheless, we recite this every day because of its clarity. Because it covers all the functions. Now we're going to learn, according to the Rambam, what the halachic order is in this order of the day. Say What is the order of the constant daily offerings? It all begins with, as dawn approaches, the supervisor comes, the guy who's in charge of the lottery, which we learned earlier at Great Lens, and he taps on the gate of the courtyard, the small gate, and they open it for him. He gently taps on the gate. Reminiscent, say the commentaries of, the Rambam says, in his commentary to the Mishnah, Kail, Deidi, Deifek, the voice of my beloved, comes knocking, gentle, beckoning knock. So that was the gentle morning knock. Who placed him lay in the Kohanim, who slept there, they hear this gentle, beckoning knock, they're waiting for it, and they open the small gate. They then go through the inspection of the entire temple courtyard. We learned about this at great length, and it was described in the Yilchus earlier, a whole inspection, you know, many, many, many years ago, when I was young, I'm still young, but when I was younger, we had the camp down Israel here, and one of the things I used to do is I used to drive the bus. I was a good bus driver. And, you know, we're talking about a serious bus. I used to call them back then, I don't know if they still have bluebirds. 84 passenger, I'm a serious bus. So in order to be able to drive a bus, of course I had a license, a special bus driver's license, the first thing you need to do in the morning is you need to do a full inspection. So it's early in the morning, it's cold in the Southern California morning usually, and you've got to walk around and inspect every little detail. And it's like, it takes a lot of discipline. That's what the Kohanim did. They inspected the whole courtyard, like I inspected my bus. I'm just trying to wake up everybody here. Okay. They then appointed the people who are baking the chavitim. The chavitim is that deep fry or surface fry cake that the Kohen Gadol offered every day, half in the morning and half in the afternoon. Somebody had to bake it. So they had a team of chefs, of pastry chefs, who baked the chavitim first thing in the morning. Now, of course, touched upon earlier, and we will touch upon it again and again and again. All the Kohen that were there, already immersed in a mikvah. The Kohen did nothing before immersing in a mikvah. This was done even before the supervisor arrived. They love Shubik Dekun, and they already donned their priestly garments. The Abayu Yam, the Belishkes Agodis, and they all gather in the chamber of Yun Stone, where the Sanhedrin would meet, where the Supreme Court would meet, which was half holy and half mundane, as we learned. The Alfiso, and they would conduct Pius Rish in the first lottery, which we learned about earlier. Vishani in the second lottery. The Yisker Kalecha Bimalachte, and every lottery winner or winners, because one of them we learned had 13, would have their job commission be honored, as we explained. Maschal Zesh Zacha, but from Sadesh, and immediately the guy who merits to be the one who to remove the ashes does so. Vitaida Malasedish Shaman, when he removes the ashes. And from the outer altar, as we described. He then sets up the large pyre, the large wood pile, and ignites it. He then sets up a second wood pile. We learned earlier that there were three wood piles on the altar. The first was the main one. <clears throat> the second one was where the Kohen who smoked the incense comes with his pan and takes some hot coals and flame. That's pile number two. And then pile number three was just so it should always be there. There should be a constant flame, we learned. Here we're talking about he does fire number one, fire number two. He then brings up two lobs. To add wood, he places them on the large flame, just to increase the flame. The team enters the place where they kept all the vessels stored. And they remove all of the ministering vessels, which they needed, all day. They had a list, they went through the list, they took all the vessels that they would need that day. Now we also learned earlier that before they offered the, old, the, the daily burnt offering, the daily lamb, they would give him, give this lamb water to drink, for the various reasons we learned earlier, they wanted the lamb to drink water just before it was offered. And the Kohen, who won the lottery and merited to actually do the slaughtering, takes it and leads it to the butchering area. 
who merited to bring the parts of the lamb up the ramp. They follow him because that's the team. And after then, once it's butchered, carry the parts. We learned it was a smaller team when it came to a lamb, a much larger team if it was a sacrifice, not the daily offering, but if it was another sacrifice, they needed a much larger team. Shay and Shaman, they dwell, they raided there, until the main gate was open. Remember, the supervisor came into the side gate. And then all of this stuff started. There is a point in time where there's the main gate opens. At the moment of the opening of the main gate, simultaneously, Shay Khatim, they slaughter. As I the daily offering. As the gate is opening, they slaughter. Following that, two koanim enter into the vestibule, into the base on the One of these two koanim merited to draw the lottery on removing the ashes of the inner altar. And the second one merited to remove the ashes in the base on the itself of the menorah. We learned about all of this earlier base. And the one who removes the ashes of the altar, Medashna, does this task. Bishaw at the same time, simultaneous to the time, that the shochet kohen slaughters the daily offering. And then Zedeki actually sprinkles, dashes. Hadam the blood, Zeshi Kibla the one received it. And as I pointed out many times, receiving and sprinkling of the blood is a main ritual of this whole thing. Gimel 3, Yachash Zerkin Masadom, after the dash or sprinkle the blood, Nathan Zeshi Vahechach Hamishnadas, as we learned in great detail earlier, the Kohen who is inside the base on Migdash begins to cleanse and prepare and kindle, according to Rambam, five of the seven lights of the menorah. We learned earlier we want to kind of draw attention to this, so we clean and light five, then we wake and come back later for the other two just to make some noise. Just to draw attention. They both exit the vestibule. The chamber of Eloship based on its Bachayim. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I'm just kidding, there was no ranch. Those who are in the butchering area, Mafshitin, are skinning, Omenachim, and butchering the offering. And each Kohen, Maila is carrying, or Maila is carrying, is bringing up Eber, the limb, or body parts, which he merited, Lakhevesh, for the lamb. Different Kohen merited to take different parts of the lamb's body up the ramp, we learned. Where do they deposit these body parts? They don't bring it all the way up to the flames right now, they deposit. These body parts, Mechatsi, Kevesh, on the west side of the lower half of the ramp. We learned that the ramp was quite a long ramp. If I remember correctly, 30 or 32. Almost. So about halfway up, a little less, is where they would deposit these body parts on the western side. That's of the regular daily offering, the shell was in, but of the additional special, or as they say in Israel, special offering, and they would place it, Mechatsi, Kevesh, on slightly below halfway up the ramp, not on the west side, but on the east side. So everyone knows the daily offering was on the west side, halfway up, the Musaf offering was on the east side, a little less than halfway up. What about the Rosh Chodesh Musaf offering? I'm glad you asked. They place it on this beach on the actual altar, all the way, all the way up, all the way up. Memayla up on high, being carried between one horn or corner and the other. They had an area where the Kohen would be able to walk along the edge of the Mizbeach. That's where they placed the limbs of the Rosh Chodesh offering. Why would the Rosh Chodesh offering be placed on the edge of the altar itself? In order to publicize that today's Rosh Chodesh. Now he says, all the limbs and body parts of the offerings are salted there. Remember we learned there are quite a few salt stations. One of them is on the ramp, and the other is at the top of the altar. Now here, they also sprinkled salt on the ramp. Even on Shabbos, when this is a practice that is questionable, violates Shabbos. But here it's urgent. In order that the coin not slip and fall with all the juices that are on the ramp, they can slip and fall and hurt themselves. As they're bringing up these logs, were like heavy. There is a problem, because the Kohen served barefoot. Nothing could be between the bare feet of the Kohen and the surface of the base of English. So even the salt would be considered a separation. However, bringing up the wood is not a formal part of an offering. The wood delivery is not a formal offering. We're not concerned. But obviously this suggests to us that bringing up the limbs would be problematic if the Kohen was stepping on salt. So I guess they did have to weigh this very carefully. After they bring all the limbs to the ramp, Wisconsin Kohen, they all gather into the chamber of Yunstone. Now comes the ritual that we learned about earlier. The supervisor says to them, Hey guys, I want you all to recite one blessing. And this we did not learn about earlier recently. And they begin the Kohen and they read, The blessing that we read before the Shema. Interestingly enough, they also would read the Ten Commandments. 
It actually says that our sages wanted to make the Ten Commandments part of our daily service, but they elected not to, so that people not say it's only the Ten Commandments that are important, and the rest of the commandments are not that important. But in the base on they actually, uh, they called and did read the Ten Commandments. Ushma and the Shema, Bahayim Shemayim, Bahayim, the three portions of the Shema, the Emes Viyasim and the paragraph that follows, Uritzay, and they, the paragraph of Uritzay from the Amida, which talks about the prayers and offerings of our people, Vesim Sholem and the prayer, the last of the 18 or 19 prayers asking God to grant peace, or Bishabbos, and on Shabbos, Vesim the Yed, Brachach is one Brachach. Vihi, and that is the Brachach, Shayyendu Anshim Mishra, Yetzel Anshim Mishra, Nichas, which the exiting watch group of Kornim, extending blessing to the entering group of Kornim. What do they say? A beautiful blessing. Me, Sheshikin, Eshmei Babayas Hazer, he who causes his name to dwell in this house, referring to God Almighty, Yashkin, may he cause to dwell, Beinechem, amongst you, Ahabo, Ahabo, Sholeim, Vireus, love and brotherhood and peace and friendship, which is actually some of the language we find in the prayer for the bride and groom. The Kornim are into very competitive stuff and we don't want them fighting about their honors. Following that prayer, they go do what we learned earlier. They do the third and fourth lottery. We already covered the details of that, but we didn't learn that there was a prayer and blessing in between. Now we know who merited to offer the incense. When he enters, he causes the incense to smoke. He offers the incense. Following that, the who merits to remove the ashes of the menorah goes back in. Remember, he did five candles. He walked out. He now goes back. And he... Prepares, and according to the Rambam, kindles, shteyanetis, two of the lamps, meaning six and seven, if they were extinguished. And then they both go out, and they stand on Malasulam on the steps of the Ulam, or he and his brother Kohanim. When they reach between the Ulam and the altar, this is interesting, one of the Kohanim grabs a rake, and he throws it, he throws the rake. Between the entry area and the altar, so it landed on that surface, and it made a heck of a lot of noise, made a big tumult. And it made a very loud noise. It says that the noise was so loud that no one in Jerusalem could hear his fellow man speaking to him at that time. That's how booming that noise was. In Tumid, chapter 3, Mishnah, it says that the noise could be heard even in Jericho. What was the purpose of that noise? Anyone who heard that sound, he knew a bunch of things. Number one, he knew Sheikh Abakayan and his brother Kohanim Nichnasim were entering the Shachlis to bow, and no one else should be there, or everyone should be watching on the outside, and he would come. That's what the Kohanim did. Maybe he would join in bowing, I'm not sure. The Levite who heard that sound, he knew a different message. To start speaking the words of song, he came. And the head of the Israelite group heard that sound of the falling rake. He would prevent anyone who might be impure at the gate. Anybody who was impure, who did not yet bring his offering, which makes him pure, waited there because he had to first bring the offering before he could enter. That was also the signal that the Kohen, we learned earlier, who merited to take the limbs off the ramp and bring it up to the pyre and put it in, or throw it in. That's the sound that gives him the signal. They bring the parts, the body parts, into the flame. Then those, we learned earlier, were standing on the steps of the vestibule. They began and they extended the blessing of the Kohen. Bracha Achas, one blessing. B'Shem Amafedish, using Hashem's special name, explicit name, Kamesha Bi'arnu, as we explained in its proper place, then, having offered the body parts of the burnt offering, they would now bring up the meal offering of libation, and following the meal offering, they would then offer the Kohen Godol's Chabitim gift. And they would bring up the wine for libation. Now, while the wine was being poured, the Levites would sing the daily song. You know, every day we say the psalm of the day. We say, uh, this is Hayom Yom, whatever it is, Shabbat, Hoyu, Halabim, Omrim, the Vesam Migrash, the song of the Levites. This is what we're talking about. While the wine was being poured, you had the band, the instrumental and vocal groups of Levites got together, and they did their thing on the steps. While they gave the wine to the one who poured it, were standing by the table of the fats, near the table where the fats were stored, and they were holding two trumpets, and the assistant Kohen Godel Amen, just standing up on the corner of the altar, and it's some distance away, but they had like handkerchiefs or flags. A flagman. The guy was a flagman. They talk over here, but following the motion of the flags, they used their trumpets and they sounded kia, trua, kia, like we do in Rosh Hashanah. And then the ones with the trumpets would go next to the Kohen, 
who was placed in charge of the symbol. Remember, we learned there's a whole list of how many of each instrument there were. There was one symbol. One trumpeteer on one side, one trumpeteer on the other side. Zion, Shah, Menasach, Lenasach. When the priest who offered the libation bent down to pour, made it has gone by Sudor and Bisgan. The assistant Kohen Gadol would wave the flags. He was the flag man, and that's a sign for everybody else to perform their job. Hikish, Zebatsilzo. The Kohen with the symbols would give a clap with the symbols. Symbols make a lot of noise. Bim! And the trumpeteers began to blow the trumpets. And the Levites began to speak the song. So that it's happening. When they reached the end of a bar, each one had three bars. The entire people in the courtyard bowed. By each pause, or by each bar. And by each pause there was a tia, a blast. And by each blast there was bowing. The total amount of tias were teisha nine, as we explained. All of the above was for the communal offering. These are only for communal offerings, burnt and peace, mentioned specifically in the Torah. However, burnt offerings in the Dova of voluntary, of a voluntary type. Even that, which can be classified as a communal offering, but it's not a prescribed communal offering. It's from the overreach from that which is left over. They bring special extra offerings, but not prescribed. Even though they may be communal, there's no song accompanied them. So also, don't think for a moment that whenever there's wine libation, you have this whole production, no, only for mandatory wine libation, part of the communal burnt offering. But just if somebody or the community does wine libation, there is no song <coughs> accompanying them. <coughs> now comes a famous teaching. What was the song? Which words did the Levites use? And this mirrors, to a very great extent, our own Shir Shalom, which actually mirrors this. Sunday they said, Monday they said, Very similar to our Yom, which emulates them. What did they say during the wine libation of the Musaf service of Shabbos? The Musaf Shabbos and the additional offering of Shabbos, they would say, the song of the portion of Azino. Azino is a beautiful section of song at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which actually breaks up into six parts. And they take it and divide it into six parts, like we have the first six aliyahs of Azino. Those are the six parts. They break it up over six weeks. And it's Hazib, Loch, that's the letters that begin the six parts. The hey is Hazino, the Zion is Zechor, and so on and so forth. Like we do the six aliyahs of Azino. One sixth of Azino, one section is said every Shabbos. So it takes six weeks to go full cycle. Gomru, Hashira, they finished this Shira, the Shisha Shabbos in six weeks. Chazim Laresh, they start at the beginning, and that's the way it goes, cycle after cycle. The Mincha Shel Shabbos, what about Mincha of Shabbos? What did they do by the afternoon offering? Anybody says, Oz Yashir Meisha, he says the song, the song of Oz Yashir. O Michamocha, Michamocha, similar to what we have in the Siddur prior to Yishtabach. The song of redemption of the splitting of the sea. But Musa Shal Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah Musa, Ayo Emim, Haninu, Lokim, Ozeinu, and Chol Yisbach Hamishim came around. Thursday, Emim, they said, Ashir, Nesim, Shikh, Mebukim, etc. The Mincha Shal Rosh Hashanah, Emim, which one did they sing? So he says, The Rosh Chodesh song supersedes the Shabbos song. In order to publicize, Yud Aleph 11, the closing paragraph of chapter 6. As we learned earlier in the, I think, chapter 5, Together with the Musaf offering on Shabbos, they also offered the two bowls of incense from the showbread. Before the wine libation of the Musaf. So that that's another component. Now he says, in closing, following the daily morning order, that's all repeated in the afternoon. The same thing. Chutz, with the exception of the removal of the ash from the outer altar. They don't remove ash. The altar is very busy in the afternoon. It's high traffic time. The Sidra Marochis and the setting up of the showbreads is never done in the afternoon. It's a morning deed on Shabbos. And the lottery, by and large, is only done in the mornings. These are morning rituals. As we explained, end of chapter 6. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchas Tamidim Umusafim, the laws of the regular sacrifices, offerings, and the additional. And we learned lots about the regular offerings, the Korban Tomid, and we began to touch upon some of the additional offerings. And now he goes on to say, which is the new moon, which is a special festive day in Jewish life, a renewal. Makrivin, we offer Musaf Rosh Chodesh, an additional offering of Rosh Chodesh, Achar, Tomid, Shoshachar, after the daily offering of the morning. 
And this is expressed beautifully in the Torah reading of Rosh Chodesh, which begins with the daily offering and then goes to Shabbos and then goes to Rosh Chodesh. The Musaf of Shabbos and the Musaf of Rosh Chodesh. Now, the Kamahu Musaf Rosh Chodesh, what is the agenda? How many animals are offered in the additional offering of Rosh Chodesh? So he says, there's a big shopping list. Parim Shnayim, two bulls, Ba'ayalachar and one ram. Sounds like sports teams, the bulls and the rams. Beshiva, Kvasim, and seven sheep. Hakel, Eilus, every one of these are burnt offerings. In addition to all that, Usir Izim, there is one goat, Chatos, as a sin offering. This is the list of Rosh Chodesh additional offerings. Okay, so now we have a lot to do. How do we go about this? So he says it's very simple. Beis, Masa, Kola, is the procedure of all of the above burnt offerings, the two bulls and the ram and the seven sheep. Kimase, I told they all follow the procedure of the daily offering. So you just follow the procedure and you got it. No need to go through it again. And what about the procedure of the sin offerings of Rosh Chodesh, or special festivals? No need to go through those again as well. They follow the procedure of the sin offering. What type of sin offering? We learned earlier there are two types of sin offerings. One is eaten. Certain parts are smoked on the altar and the rest are eaten. And then there are some which are called Nisrofis. They are burned in the ash heap area. He says, no, like those which are eaten. So the Rosh Chodesh and festival sin offerings are Kachatos HaNecholes, like the other sin offerings which we talked about, which type? The ones that are consumed by the Kohanim. Continuing in the special offerings, Gimel 3, the Pesach, on the festive day of Pesach. Now we touched upon somewhat earlier the Korban Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice. But here we're talking about not the Paschal sacrifice that was offered Erev Pesach. Here we're talking about the additional offerings of Pesach day of the 15th. The Pesach, Makrivim, Kor Musa, beginning with the first day of Pesach and continuing every day throughout all seven days, we bring an additional offering daily. Behem Harishan from the first day, Adyom to the seventh day. That's why nowadays, every single one of the days of Pesach, even the intermediate days, has a Musaf service. What's the Musaf service? To commemorate this additional offering. Kimusaf, Roshay, Chodoshim. The list of offerings mirrors the list of Rosh Chodesh. Horim Shnayim, Two bulls, one ram, seven sheep, hakel, all of the above are all those burnt offerings. And as earlier, Rosh Chodesh, a sin offering. Which type of sin offering? The type that is eaten? Hanachel is the type that is eaten by the coin. Now we enter into a special law which we will deal with from here to the end of this chapter. And that is <coughs> on the second day of Pesach, which is the 16th day of Nisan. Makrivim, we offer Yosef al Musaf Shokol on top of, or in addition to the Musaf offering of every day, Keves, a sheep, Laola, for another burnt offering. So it's an extra sheep. Im, that comes together with Omer Hatnufa, the offering of the Omer, which is a barley offering, as we will learn, which is waved. That's the offering of the Omer. Vihi, and that is Mincha, it's a meal offering, a flour offering, except that here the flour is not wheat, but it's barley. Shel Sibar, it's communal, it's not individual, it's communal. The Meshav Yarno, as we explain. So this is the second day of Pesach, the 16th. Day of Nisan. Its time is set. It has to be the 16th. Well, the therefore, any offering whose time is set, we learned earlier, supersedes the Shabbos, which means can be offered and should be offered even on Shabbos. Any offering that could wait is never offered on Shabbos. An individual offering, a private offering, what we call in the medical industry an elective procedure, an elective offering should always wait. We should never violate Shabbos or Yom for that matter. But an offering that cannot wait, it's prescribed for this time, and this time only supersedes Shabbos. An example of that is the daily offering. The offering is brought every day, even on Shabbos, even on Yom Kippur, even on Cinco de Mayo. Every day. Certainly this offering, which is prescribed for this day, is brought on this day. Yes, Atumah, it also supersedes. If the majority of the Jewish people find themselves in a state of ritual impurity, they still may bring this offering as we talk. What kind of offering is this, and how does it work? He says in Hey 5, in Medina Minchazu, this meal offering is only brought, Elamayeretz Yisrael, from grains grown in Israel. You can't bring this from a farm in Kentucky. doesn't work. Or even Montana. Shenemar, as it says, you shall bring us Omer, this weight called the Omer, Reishis Sirchem, the first of your harvest, El HaKohen to the Kohen. Mitzvah it is the best manner of performance. It's Mitzvah Idelias. Lovely, it should be brought in according from that which is close by, the closest place where they grow quality barley in or near Jerusalem. Leibam in if they can't find a quality barley field close by, they can bring it from any place in Israel. As long as it is a quality barley field. As we will talk, and we also talked earlier. The lengths that they went to, that everything brought into the base of English should be grade AAA quality. 
as we say here, not Ralph's quality, but Gelson's quality. That's a story nearby where you pay twice as much for everything. Well, mitzvah say, the best way of expressing the mitzvah is, when he caught her by it should be harvested at night. Beleo shishos, or the evening of the 16th day, whether weekday or on Shabbos, which means, let's talk in our terms, the evening of the second Seder. That's why we start counting the Omer, the evening of the second Seder. Back to the text here, so it's best to harvest it at night, the evening of the 16th, whether it's weekday or Shabbos. And all night is appropriate for harvesting the Omer. In general, in Jewish terms, the earlier the better, because people with alacrity always do a mitzvah. As soon as possible, first opportunity, you know, there are two types of people. One is expressed by the expression, Never put off for tomorrow what you can do today. And the other is never do today what you can put off for tomorrow. So, in Jewish teachings, alacrity, zrizus, hustle, hustle, move a muscle, let's go. That's exemplary in the performance of mitzvahs. Nevertheless, all night works. Now, what if for some reason they didn't harvest it at night? If they harvested it only in the morning during daylight hours, kosher, it's still kosher. Now, this harvest should be mitzvah, say, the best performance of this mitzvah, is to harvest it from standing, growing grain. The grain as it's still standing up attached to the ground. If for some reason they can't find barley grain that is still standing and growing, if there's no other choice, they can take sheaves of barley that have been recently been cut and bound, and they can bring from that, but it's not the best way to perform the mitzvah. Test 9, mitzvah say, the best way to perform the mitzvah is loving in Allah, to bring from fresh barley, moist barley. If they couldn't find moist, fresh barley, they can even bring it from dried barley grain. Now he says, The practice was that they would bring the owner from the fields just south of Jerusalem. Why just south of Jerusalem? To remind them of south of Chicago, I guess. All right, we have a couple people here from South Chicago. Now, that was a bad joke. Okay. Hoya nor, the way they worked it is, we learned something similar to this earlier in general with regard to grains of meal offerings in the base on the A very special idea here in agriculture. Hoya nor, chatsi hasoda. What they would do is they would leave half the field barren. They took a big field, a beautiful field, they left half of it unplanted. They would plant only half. do this year. Now, that's a theory in agriculture. We didn't have too many farms where I lived in Newark. But if they did, I would have known this. That if you leave half the field barren, the other half grows better. Takes the nutrients from the whole field and expresses it in half a field. So that's this year. Well, next year, they do the opposite. They leave barren the half that was planted last year. They plant now the half that was barren last year. That gives, that gives triple-A quality. Barley. Well, maybe, and that's the barley you should bring from, from the elite fields south of Jerusalem. Now, we're up to 11. Before I go to 11, I want to explain a very important, very beautiful introduction, which will help us understand much of what we're about to say. And that is, there was a bitter, bitter disagreement. There was a bitter split between the traditional halachic observant Jewish community, who are referred to as the Perushim, the Pharisees, the traditional Torah scholars and those who followed them. And then there were the Sadducees, the Sadducim. What did the Sadducees believe? Their teachings taught, the written law, the Bible is godly. The oral law, the rabbis made it up. It has no value. So there were many instances where their practice differed from our practice. For example, not related to this instance. There's a verse that says, You shall not kindle flame in all of your habitations on the day of Shabbos. We know that means you can't ignite fire, you can't create fire. But it doesn't mean you can't sit in a room with lights. Their interpretation was no fire, they sat in the dark. All Shabbos, they sat in the dark. Another example says you shall place the tefillin between your eyes. They used to place the tefillin on the nose. We know it means on the head, lined up between the eyes. All of these are interpretations of the oral law, which was a companion to the written law. What did Moshe do for 40 days and 40 nights in heaven? He studied and became proficient in the oral law, then came and spent 40 years teaching it. They rejected the oral law. They said, if it's not in the Chumash, it's not in the Bible, don't talk to me about it. What does all that have to do with the Omer? I'm glad you asked. There is a verse that says, the verse, you shall count for you, the day after Shabbos. From the day that you bring us Omer, this. Barley offering of waving, you count Sheva Shabbos seven complete weeks. That's the mitzvah, the counting of the Omer. In the interpretation of the Sadducees, they took the words Mimachras Hashabbos literally the day after Shabbos, and they always saw to it that this would happen on Sunday because Mimachras Hashabbos the day after Shabbos is Sunday. So in their tradition, they did it radically different. No matter when Pesach came out in the week, the Omer was always Sunday. The traditional Jewish community fought them 
fiercely to maintain the teachings of Torah. What does Mimachras HaShabbos mean? What is the meaning of the day after Shabbos? The word Shabbos doesn't mean Shabbos. It means the Sabbath. It means a special day. Or as they say in Israel, special. What does it mean? It could mean the holiday also. In our interpretation, it's the day after the great holiday of Pesach. The day after the first day of Pesach. They said, no, it means Sunday. So therefore, as our sages guided and instituted the practice of the counting of the Omer and the waving of the Omer and, and, and the whole scenario, they went above and beyond the call of duty to make clear that they are following the traditions of the oral law and rejecting the teachings of the Sodocies. Now we're going to understand a lot of what we're about to learn. This bar, this offering, first of all, it came from barley. I mentioned it several times, but this is the first time the Rambam mentions that it's not a wheat offering like all other offerings in the Torah. We learned earlier that every single grain offering in the Torah is from wheat with the exception of two. One communal and one individual. This is the communal and the individual is the adulterous woman's offering is from barley. But this particular offering, the Omer offering, is from barley. This is a law taught, handed down, going back to Moses. How did it work? Already before Yom Tev, they would send a delegation sent by the courts. And as they found choice barley still connected to the ground, they put a little string around it, they bound it, to be able to grasp it and cut it, chick-shock. It should be easier to harvest when the time comes. This was a big deal. It was a ritual. All the residents from the cities nearby, that field, south of Jerusalem, would gather around. In order that there'd be a big promote, there'd be a big deal. They would have all the reporters of the newspapers and the cable stations. Everybody would come to watch to witness the harvesting of the Omer. Publicity. And they would harvest three saws of barley. That's a lot of barley. They would have three. People do it, and some of the commentaries explain, we're about to enumerate a whole bunch of threes here. And that was, when we have three, it becomes strong. It, it, the publicity goes out. It's not just one guy doing something. Three different guys doing something, everybody knows about it. Obesholesh, kupes, in three baskets. Obesholesh, magolis, with three sickles. He had three teams. As soon as it got dark, the guy designated to reap. The reaper said to all of the bystanders, and again, this was to make sure that everybody knows we're following the traditional teaching, and not the teaching of the Sadducees. Bo Hashemesh, did the sun set? He's asking the throng, the crowd, is it sunset yet? Hey, they say, yes, sir, it's sunset. But he's not happy. Ba he asks a second time. Did the sunset? Hey, they say, yes. Ba did the sunset? Hey. So now we've established that the sunset. In Judaism, the idea of three is a chazoka. You establish something by doing it three times. <coughs> then he says, Magoze, look at this tool. <coughs> is this a sickle? Hey, they say, yes, sir. Magoze, again, is this a sickle? Hey, they say, yes, sir. Magoze, is this a sickle? Hey, they say, yes. Kupazu, is this a basket? Hey, they say, yes. Kupazu, basket? Hey, yes. Kupazu, basket? Hey, yes. Shabbos, what if it was Shabbos? Where halacha mandates that you have to cut it, even on Shabbos. Whereas the Sadducees would say, you always have to do it after Shabbos. I'm would say, Shabbos, I'm today Shabbos. I'm they say, yes. Shabbos, I'm today Shabbos. I'm laying, yes. Shabbos, I'm today Shabbos. I'm laying. So now we've established if it's Shabbos, that it's Shabbos, and they're about to harvest, which ordinarily is prohibited on Shabbos. But here is a mitzvah according to the traditional interpretation conveyed by Hashem to Moshe and by Moshe to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And then he says to them, my dear friends, Exer, shall I begin to harvest? They say, Ketzer, harvest. Exer, harvest. And they say, harvest. Exer, Ketzer, harvest. Three times. Sholish. Every question, every procedure is verbally repeated once, twice, and three times. Why go to such extreme? Because of those who erred. Who ultimately <coughs> exited, left the Jewish people, the Bayashani during the time of the second base, who said, that, that teaching, which the Torah says, the day after Shabbos, who Shabbos gracious, they said that is the Sabbath of the week called the Shabbos of creation, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbos, and from the oral tradition we learn, Shabbos, that it doesn't mean Shabbos, Ella, what does Shabbos mean, the Sabbath, Yom Tov, it means holiday, the prophets, and the members of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, saw pit in every generation, that they always waved, and did the ritual of Yom on the 16th of Nisan, whether weekday, baby Shabbos or Sabbath, it says in the Torah of Lechem, the Kali, the Carmel, don't eat bread, roasted grain, or kernels, to the middle of this day. So that's one verse. And they ate from the produce of the land of Israel the day after Pesach. 
produce of the land, matzahs, the koli, matzahs and roasted grain. So that's a verse brought down, which suggests that it was the day after Pesach. If you say that that Pesach was Shabbos, these fools who argue imagine, how could the Torah even suggest that you can eat new produce, which we will learn soon you can't. Something secondary or tertiary, not the cause, but some happenstance that it happened to be Shabbos. The Torah makes it clearly dependent upon the fact that it's the day after Pesach. Clearly, that the words the day after Pesach is the cause, which allows us to eat of the new grains. And we don't pay attention what day of the week it is, as long as it is the day after Pesach. means Pesach. So that long paragraph explains this powerful background information on this whole practice. Moving right along in the practice, you'd base what if they harvested it? So they harvested it, and they put it in the basket, and they brought it to the courtyard. So now it's in the temple courtyard. So you have raw, harvested barley. We learned earlier when you have raw, harvested grain, that the process was a very exhausting process where they thoroughly, thoroughly processed this into very fine, fine flour, or fine produce. So they beat it. They winnowed it, and they selected the kernels. And they took the barley, and they roasted them over fire in a cylinder with holes in it so that the fire would reach. The fire would reach everywhere. Ripe ears roasted over fire, ground from fresh kernels. So this was a process. It was very fresh, yet in order to make it usable and in order to fulfill the mitzvah, they would roast it somewhat over fire. From tradition, we learned that this only applies to the meal offering of the Omer. After it was roasted, they spread it out in the temple courtyard, and the winds blow through it <coughs> to remove the shaft, I guess. And then they take it and they process it in a mill for kernels. And they grind the three measures called Esau. From these three humongous measures, they bring forth Esorain. One Esorain, a much smaller measure, which is sifted with 13 sifters. And the balance, which is lots, could be redeemed by anybody. And could be eaten as everyday food. The chayyav the chala, one is obligated to take chala or potter min but one is exempt from meiser. Commission beyond as we already explained back to the subject. We take this measure, isorin, shalseilus of the finest processed flour of asedim of barley flour. and we mix it belay shemen with a log, which is a measure of oil. B'shisha also benis, and all of this was done on the sixteenth day of nisan. And we place upon it kremets, a handful of vain, frankincense, kishara menachas, like all other meal offerings. and we wave it or minifay, we wave it on the eastern side. Melech umevi mala umevi, we bring it to each of the six directions, east, west, north, south, up, down. And then we bring it close. Can I get chuda towards the corner? Which corner? Shalkeren Marov is the ramus of the southwest corner of the altar. Kishar Menachas, like all the other meal offerings, he takes a handful, umakter, and offers it upon the altar. The hashar and the rest of it, nechol akainim, is consumed by the kohanim. Mishkishiyari Kohen Menachas, like the remainder of all other meal offerings. So this whole procedure was to take this handful and smoke it on the altar. At what point of the day do they actually take the handful and place it on the altor? After they offer the additional offerings of the day, the kevesoela and the sheep of the burnt offering, before the afternoon offering, that's when they brought this Omer offering. You'd give moving right along about the laws of this Omer. Also, you're going to learn something which you may have walked into a bakery or into a kosher store and you've seen, or on a package, you've seen signs or words like Yashon. We sell Yashon. This is made of Yashon. Chadosh. Yashon. Chadosh means new. Yashon means old. What is the meaning of this? Is it from the new crop of this year? Or is it from the old crop of last year? Why? Because as we're about to learn, there is a law in the Torah. The Torah says that until we bring this Omer offering, and really until seven weeks later on Shavuos, when we bring the two breads, which are not from barley but from wheat, we cannot partake of the new crop, because this permits us to partake of the new crop. This offering gives Hashem so to speak, his part, and then we may partake of the new crop. Therefore, until this offering is brought, better yet, until the Shavuos offering is brought, <coughs> we should limit ourselves to eating only from the old crop, not from stuff that just grew. Now, there's a big debate as to whether this is observed nowadays in the diaspora. Some do and some don't, but that's not the context of what we're learning here. I'm giving you a, a 
pragmatic connection to relate to what we're about to learn here. Also, Leek said that it's Israel, it is forbidden to harvest in Israel. See, says Israel. Any of the five species of grain, with the five species of grain which the Torah considers bread grain, before the harvesting of the Omer. As it says, the Omer should be the first, the beginning of your harvest. It should be the first of all the harvest. When does this apply? Only from the type of harvest which has the appropriate quality from which we can theoretically bring Omer. For example, a field located in a parched valley, which is flooded with irrigation waters, but it's not the best place to bring the Omer offering from. It's a very low quality barley. That could be harvested even earlier because no one would even dream of bringing the Omer from this from this low quality harvest. Nevertheless, you should not start making grain heaps. Now what happens? Yudalit 14, what if grain became rooted, firmly rooted in the ground before the Omer? It's really strong in the ground. It grew its roots. Our sages explain that it takes 14 days between the time when seedling trees are planted and when they take root. That's trees. We can assume it takes less time for grain to take root. So once it's firmly rooted, then the Omer offering says, you may eat this when it grows completely. Why? Because it's been firmly rooted before this offering. But if it's not firmly rooted, also the concept that it's also forbidden to harvest it, as just like it's forbidden to eat it, until the next year's Omer. So you have another year to wait, because you missed the deadline. It's like missing the cutoff when your kid's trying to get into preschool. What if grain did not mature the last third, which is the final process of maturity? It's only two-thirds mature. You can trim it and give it to an animal to eat for animal fodder. That's okay, because it's not really edible. We can also cut it if it benefits the harvest by trimming so that it gets a fresh cut. What if you need to cut some barley grains in order to make room because there's a mourner and the mourner needs more room because the visitors are coming or a place of gathering for prayer or Torah study? In other words, you're not harvesting for the harvest. You're harvesting to clear. It says, your harvest, not the harvest of a mitzvah, simply to make room for a mourner's house or a gathering or what have you. Nevertheless, just because we're permitted to harvest, we should not start binding the sheaves, the stalks of barley, into sheaves as the reapers do. We should just leave them in piles. We already explained earlier, shame that we do not bring any meal offerings. Nor the meal offering of libation. the first fruits. From the new crop. Before the bringing of the Omer, which means anything we bring to the base of Migdash as a grain offering must be preceded by the Omer. Maybe if he did, it's on pit. Better yet, it should not even be brought before the two loaves are brought on Shavuos. Maybe, but if he did, bring it. Before the two loaves are brought on Shavuos, kosher, it is kosher, whereas if you brought it before the Omer, it is not kosher. So the Shavuos law is much more liberal than the Omer law. The one who brings a meal offering from the new crop, Chila first, adds a blessing, Shechiyonu, he makes a Shechiyonu blessing, because it's the first time of the year. Since it's the first meal offering to be brought from new grain, it warrants a blessing, that's the interpretation of the Ramadan, that the first Kohen who offers it, makes a Shechiyonu. Yutes 19, wheat, or produce, that were, uh, grains that were planted after the Omer was offered, and it was harvested after the Omer was offered Shoshana the next year. We're not sure. Whether we can bring the offerings from this before the two breads are brought on Shavuos. Because on the one hand, you should be able to. Because it was planted after the Omer offering of one year. So it's new. Then it had the Shavuos offerings already. And then it had the next Omer offerings the next year. Or perhaps the two breads on Shavuos have to be from the same fiscal year, from the same agricultural year as the Omer. So this is the unusual question which the Rambam brings from the Talmud. So grain that was in the ground. The leaves began to form, or they began to blossom, at the time of the bringing the Shteyalech and the two breads on Shavuos, which means it's newly planted, and on Shavuos time you can see that things are happening. If this process where the leaves began to form and began to blossom, is this considered taking root? It's not considered taking root, it's considered the very beginnings of growing. Therefore, you shouldn't bring it. Maybe. But if he did, it is accepted. If somebody harvests before the harvesting of the Omer, he violates the law. It's a violation. It's a transgression. But there is no possible lashes. And that which is reaped is kosher. 
Mitzvahs asay lishmer shabbat shabbat shtimeis miyem abos ayim and outcomes the mitzvah the counting of the omer it is a biblical precept that we should count seven complete weeks from the day we bring the omer shemem as it says uswatim lachem you shall count for you mimachas shabbat from the day after the sabbath which refers to the first day of pesach shabbat shabbat is seven weeks now as we find in our omer counting when we say today is eight days which is one week and one day for the omer why are we spelling it out who cares if it's one week and one day. Because a mitzvah limnei sayomim in mashabos, it's a mitzvah to count days and it's a mitzvah to count weeks. Shenevet tisur chamishim yoyim. It says fifty days. It says seven weeks, which is why throughout we mention how many weeks and how many days. Mechilas hayyim meinim. We always count at the very beginning of the day. When is the beginning of the day? The night. By he erev, by he boker. The night always is the beginning of the day. The fikal therefore mona balayla milel shisha also benisan. When do we start counting the omer? The eve preceding the sixteenth day of nisan. In the beis hamidrash they didn't do the offering till the next day, till the daytime of the sixteenth of nisan. We already start counting at night again in our terminology. The eve of the second seder. That's when we start counting the omer. What somebody forgot and did not count at night, it's okay. Because the daytime is still that day. You can count by day. It's best to count standing when we are standing. But if the count was done sitting, you also fulfills his obligation. Who has to count the Omer? Just Democrats? Just Republicans? No. Every Jew has to count the Omer. In every place, it's not only a mitzvah for Israel. It's a mitzvah for Kentucky and Montana too. And at all times. Therefore, nowadays, we count at all times and all places. This is a mitzvah that's connected to a specific time slot. Any mitzvah that's connected to a specific time slot. Those who have primary obligations, such as a woman whose primary obligation is to nurture and give birth and raise the next generation, she's exempt from all mitzvahs that have specific time slots. As we talked extensibly in earlier mitzvahs, the woman cannot say to her child, oh, wait, just wait a second, I've got to go daven. You'll eat later. <laughs> her, what she's doing is much more important than davening. And that is across the board, mitzvahs, assay, positive commandments, shazman, ganoma, tied into a certain period of time. And along the same lines, but for different reasons, Abodim, in Jewish law, a slave was converted and was transformed into a Jew at the time when the Jew purchased him as a slave. However, he was exempt from time-consuming mitzvahs because if he would do mitzvahs all day, he'd never get to work. So these are the two exceptions. Between them, they are exactly men. And we talked about this extensively earlier, specifically in the laws of prayer and in other places. And of course, like many mitzvahs, he says here in the closing, Allah, a blessing is made every night. Blessed are you, God, our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments, and commanded us. And whenever you say this with somebody, they always say, I'll sfirah sa omer, to count the omer. When do you make this bracha? Call them, she is for before you count. Mona, what if you already counted? But he didn't make a bracha. And that happens when somebody says to you, What's tonight in the omer? You say, Tonight is 13th in the omer. Whoops. Therefore, we train ourselves to say, Last night was 12. You also, if you already said it, you fulfill your obligation. If he said it as a complete sentence, Tonight is 13th, do the omer, and he can't make a bracha. Again, because he can't make a bracha, as he repeats it again, because he already did it. The, bracha, the mitzvah is to say it, he already said it. End of chapter 7. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws, Tmidim, of the regular offerings. Umusafim <coughs> and the additional offerings paid at Shmini, chapter 8. In the earlier chapter, we talked about the special offering of the Omer. Following the period of the Omer comes the 50th day of the Omer, Bayom Chamishim. On day 50, Misfiras Omer of the counting of the Omer, who is Chag Hashavuos, the festival of Shavuos. And this is a major festival. It's called Atzeres, a festival of carrying. And on this day, there are also additional offerings. Makrivim, we offer Musaf additional offerings to me, similar to Musaf Rosh Chodesh, the additional offering of Rosh Chodesh, which is. Or which are Shnei Parim, two bulls, Ayo and Aram, Beshiva Kabosim, and seven sheep. Kulam, all of the above are Olo's burnt offerings. In addition to all that, Usir, Chatos, and like Rosh Chodesh, a goat of sin offering. The above are the offerings mentioned in the book of Numbers, the portion of Pinchas, has all the Musafs, all the Musafim. The Haim, the Maftir for every major festival, can be found in Pinchas. The Haim, Musaf, Ayom, they are the additional offerings of the day. When we go buy a Torah, a used Torah, the first portion we check is Pinchas, because that's the most used portion, because that's the Maftir of every major festival. If that's okay, then you can assume that the rest of the Torah is more or less okay. And furthermore, being that it's Shavuos, there's an additional obligation, an additional sacrifice, an additional offering. We bring over and above the Muslim on this day, what the Torah refers to as a new meal offering. What is this? This is the famous, the two breads of Shavuos. And along with the two breads comes various offerings, and two rams, and seven sheep, all burnt offerings, 
separate of the previous list of the Musaf or Musafim, Usir Khatas as well as a goat of sin offering. Ushnech Basim and two sheep, Sabachlamim of peace offerings. So that's a pretty substantial list. The Elohein Akarbonis are Amulis Bachomish Vayikra. These are offerings mentioned not in the book of Numbers, but in the book of Leviticus. Nimsa, so therefore, Hakar Bimzeh, Yasir Ashleyat Mibim, over the two steady daily offerings, there are a total of. Shleisha parim two bulls, three bulls. Shleisha elam and three rams. Varbas and kvasim and fourteen sheep. Hakel totaling esim twenty behema animals. Eilas burnt offerings. In addition to ushnei sidei chatois, two goats of sin offering. What kind of sin offering? Necholim the type that are eaten by the kohenim. Ushnei kvasim shlomim necholim and two sheep which are peace offerings also eaten. They stay alechem the two breads. A non boyim elam ino oretz can only be brought from. The grain of Israel, Omina Chodesh, can only be brought from the new crop. From your, inha- from your habitation, you shall bring lechem bread, to of waving etc. What happened if they can't find any new grain? If they can't find new grain, they can bring from that which is stored away. Literally, this means the attic. They go up to the attic and bring the old grain. Preferably, they bring new grain. Here comes an interesting scenario. Where does grain come from? Where does wheat come from? It grows in the ground. What if there was a miracle? Lord, it's a miracle. Chitim, wheat, grain, which came down from the clouds, from heaven. A miracle. Yes, why I'm suffering. There's a big doubt. Whether we can actually describe this is from your habitations, because in your habitations, wheat grows from the ground. This came from clouds. Wheat doesn't grow in the clouds. Airplanes grow in the clouds. Therefore, the fikah layobe, it's better not to bring it, because as far as we're concerned, it's not normal wheat. In Havi, however, he did bring it. Kosher is kosher. The case of in general, how does this offering function? What is the modus operandi of this offering? Maybe they bring sholesh sin, chitin chadoshes, three saws of new wheat. As we learned earlier, they are struck and trodden upon extensively, as we learned, is done to all the meal offerings, and we learned this in great detail earlier about the meal offerings. And then we grind them into sailist fine flour, and then we sift them, and we produce two isarons, which is this measure, minupa, which is sifted, by twelve sifters. And the rest of it, because there's going to be a lot remaining, nifta, it may be redeemed, and after the redemption process, it may be consumed by anyone, and that would be obligated with the Mitzvah chalo, opaka, but exempt in a maestas from tithing, commission beyondu, as we already explained earlier. Dalit shnei alech shnei alechem the two breads, shehim in achodosh, which come from the new crop. Sichim lo be yisorein mikol so marsa. You have to bring an yisorein from every one and a half saws. We learned earlier there are three saws, two yisoreins from three saws. So an yisorein from each saw and a half. When we sift it with twelve sifters, lechem aponim shubam in ayosham. We learned earlier the showbreads, which were twelve showbreads coming from the old. Grain, dilay bachas, esrei, nofa. Sufficient with eleven sifters. And in the lechem upon it, it's one isarin per saw. Avala omer, but the omer we learned earlier, shubamin asayim chadoshes, which comes from new barley crop. Ein abo, min amuchar, is not from the best. El nishol seen from three saws. Or the shleish esrei nofa with thirteen sifters. Hey, bechulan, and all of the above. In riba, bemidas asayim, or asin, shebohen. All of the numbers of how many saws there have to be of the raw material to process. This is all under the best circumstances. But if something else was done, kosher, it's kosher, not a problem. We take the two measures of Isorin. If I remember correctly, Isorin is a volume of 43 and one-fifth eggs. And we need it one by one. We have two breads. We need them one at a time. And we bake them one bread at a time. Zayin really shasen and their kneading process, vari chasen and their preparation process. Bachutz is outside the courtyard. Bafiyosen, but their baking with is in the courtyard. Yecholam and like the regular meal offerings. Ches ve'enasiyosen deicha yomtiv. It's interesting. Even though this is a yomtiv offering, this offering is always brought on shulos. But the preparation, the baking of it, the making of it, does not supersede the yomtiv prohibitions. Ve'enzar chaim b'shabbos certainly does not supersede the shabbos prohibitions. So when do we make this? No problem. Before elo ifenayson we bake it me'ed of yomtiv the eve of yomtiv shenemar ulabadi yeoselachem on yomtiv. It alone may be made for you, lachem, meaning we can cook on yomtiv for ourselves. but we can't bake for God. Therefore, being that this is for Hashem, there's no problem baking it the day before Yom Tov. It's okay. Test how you add Yom Tov Shabbos. What if the day before Yom Tov is Shabbos, which you certainly can't bake it on? If you say, Shabbos, you go another day back. And they can be eaten on the third day of their baking, which is Yom Tov, because you have Erev Shabbos, Shabbos, and Yom Tov. Thursday is when it's baked. I'm sorry, I take that back. Friday is when it's baked. Shabbos is the day before Yom Tov, and Yom Tov is Sunday. The Torah specifies that this particular challah is chametz. How do they make it chametz? Most of the breads baked for Beis purposes were not chametz. 
Maybe say he brings yeast from somewhere else, and he inserts it in the measure of flour, and then he mixes, he fills the measure with fine flour, and causes it to become leavened, with that yeast. Now these chalas are similar to what we learned earlier with the showbreads, boys, and they're rectangular, and here we have new measurements. When it comes to the two breads of shuas, the length of every chala is shiva t'vachim, seven t'vachim, and its width are t'vachim, four t'vachim, its boys, and its height are the measure of two fingers. So again, these are different measurements than that which we learned earlier by the showbreads. What is the process of the wave offering of these breads together with the two sheep, which are peace offerings? Maybe he brings the two lambs, the two sheep. And he waves them, while they're still living, he waves them as a wave offering. If he waved one at a time, that's fine too. And afterwards, he slaughters them, they slaughter them, and they skin them. And he takes cause of a shake, the breast and side, he from each one, and places them on the next one, the side of the two breads, and he places his two hands beneath them, and now once again waves everything together. On the eastern side, where all the waving rituals are done. How does it work? He goes to each of the four directions, and up and down, that's six directions, east, west, north, south, up and down. If he waved them one at a time, it's fine. And then he offers a mure shnei hakos in the inner parts of the two sheep. And the balance of the meat, nechal is consumed and is eaten. Similarly speaking, the two breads, these two special shulas breads. What happens, as we learned earlier, the coin godel always gets half. So the coin godel, what's half of two is one, gets one bread. And the second bread, is divided up, is divided up to all of the priestly watches. Why? Because all of the priestly watches are there. Because it's the holiday. Remember we said on the holiday, it's free for all. Everybody can come. Everybody has to come. They're both eaten that day and half the night. Like the meats of holy of holies. What if he slaughtered two sheep for four loaves? Problem is that you're only supposed to have two loaves. And he had four loaves. If he said, may two of these four loaves be sanctified. He draws close. Two of them are many waves. And the balance. The other two. They are redeemed. They're eaten outside. Like any other. Regular mundane foods. If he didn't make that condition, it does not become sanctified. He's got a problem. What if the opposite scenario came about? He slaughtered four sheep for two chalas. What's required is two sheep for two chalas. What if he did four? He draws close, both of two of them. And he sprinkles the blood without the intent of having them be a sacrifice. And the other two are waved. The leftover ones are So that can be saved. These two chalas are both necessary. One prevents the other from being accepted. Which means if only one exists, it's a problem. And these two sheep stop one another from being accepted. But if one of these sheep died, a bora or ran away, and now the became unkosher. He should take a partner for the second. What if he slaughtered one with the proper intent and the other one died? He should take another one. The lack of two breads prevent the sheep from being accepted. But the lack of two sheep do not prevent the breads from being accepted. If they are waved with the sheep, then they do prevent the other from being accepted because they didn't wait together. What if the bread was lost? Let the sheep be lost as well. If the sheep are lost, let the bread be lost as well. They should bring other breads and other sheep. I guess here the problem uh, arises. What do they do? Because it's yom when two breads come alone without sheep, they should be waved, and then their shape should ultimately be distorted, they should be brought out to be burned. Why? We're concerned if he's going to bring bread without sheep, then a precedent will be set. Next year they'll find sheep, they'll be sheep, but they'll say, I remember last year we brought bread without sheep, we don't eat sheep anymore. I was there. So that's dangerous precedent setting. And the bull and the two rams, and the seven sheep, and the goat, because of the bread, although they come together, but one does not stop the other. From being accepted, these are two separate tracks. The two bulls of the day, Muslim, and the bull that comes across the bread, one has nothing to do with the other, they don't stop the other from being accepted. The ram of the Muslim of the day, which come for the bread, do not prevent one of the other from being accepted. What about the seven sheep of the Muslim and the seven sheep of the bread? One does not stop the other from being accepted. But if they were all slaughtered, then they do 
become indispensable requirements for one another, because the fact that they were slaughtered for the same purpose causes them to be considered a single entity. And finally, 20 Chaf, the final paragraph of chapter 8, Hatmidim, the daily offerings, Einon Ma'akrin Musafim, do not prevent the Musaf offerings from being accepted. And the Musaf offerings do not prevent the Tmidim from being accepted. They are separate tracks. Neither do the Musaf offerings stop one another from being accepted. Nor do the number of burnt offerings cause any problems in holding back the acceptance of other sacrifices. Take time to spell it out. What if there was a shortage? I'm sorry. What if they only found six? Sheep, Makrivim Shisha, they offer six. I feel they must have left, even if they only found one. Makrivim Mesa, they offer it. Maybe they are made as Masha Bosses, whether it's Rosh or it's a festival, or it's a Sabbath. There's never a makeup obligation for tomorrow or for another holiday. And here's an important, important axiom or principle when it comes to sacrifices. Any communal offering whose time has passed. For example, the Shavuos offering was not brought. You bring it, unless I'm talking about the Shavuos offering. For example, a particular communal offering was not brought. Buckle Karbone, then the offering is now, has now been nullified. Like Motsu Elishnei Kvasim, they only found two. In Yakrivo, based on the Musa Vayim, if they offer them for the Musa of the day, Elohim Tweedim Lamachar. Then they won't have the burnt offerings for tomorrow, because they're only two sheep. What should be done with it? Should the daily offering be brought? And should we hold the other one for tomorrow, or should we bring the Musa offering? And I double shuckle, it's a good question. In the Kriva, the Musa Vayim, and therefore, it's about the same. If he offers it for the Musa of the day, so be it. And if he wants to leave them, for tomorrow, for the daily offering, you should do that. And this is the interesting principle, by the way, of Avar. When the time passes, the obligation of the sacrifice has passed. There are certain mitzvahs that have no makeup. For example, I'll give you a practical, pragmatic example in our world. What if, God forbid, somebody forgets to put on film today? How does he make up for it? Does he put on film twice tomorrow? It doesn't work that way. Today is today. He has to repent. But to say that when the time passes, you can make up, there are certain mitzvahs, such as communal offerings, which cannot be made up, and there's no obligation for the next week or the next day or the next holiday. End of chapter 8.